This episode of the Ed Surge on Air podcast is brought to you by the Instructional Design and Technology Program at Emporia State University. The IDT program at ESU prepares individuals for leadership in design, development, and integration of technology into K-12, as well as private sector teaching and other areas of organizational training. Hello and welcome to this bonus episode of the Ed Surge on Air podcast. I'm Jeff Young, an editor and reporter here at EdSurge. So the other day I was scrolling through Twitter when a message caught my eye. We all know that feeling. This one was from George Siemens, a longtime leader in trying to understand the impacts of technology on higher ed. He's the guy who coined the term MOOC, which stands for Massive Open Online Course, and was a reference when he came up with it to multiplayer video games. But this tweet was a biting critique of where higher ed is heading. He wrote, I no longer think there's a huge difference. Wait. It's better if George Siemens reads it. I no longer think that there is a huge difference between for-profit and public higher education. Sit in enough faculty meetings, meet with enough leadership, and it becomes clear that it's all about money. The difference between for-profit and public is mainly about appearances. In public institutions, we claim the higher ground, but almost everything is driven by student numbers, enrollment, and dollars. Education could be less expensive. It could be more engaging. It could have a bigger impact but we are confined to a system that values dollars first. So, yes, I I called Siemens up to get beyond that tiny character count that you get on Twitter. And it turns out his critique comes in part from the rise of a new business sector that, that many people have still never heard of called online program managers or OPMs. These for-profit companies that help traditional public and nonprofit colleges build online degree programs are the equivalent of a college outsourcing some of its virtual campus to a company. And the practice has led to a lot of concern about what happens to the academy in this new hybrid world where corporate and public interests are intermixed in new ways. So and keep in mind for context here that George Siemens is a professor at a public university, the University of Texas at Arlington. Here's some of his broader take. I guess I'm kind of curious both about, you know, talking a little bit more about that idea, but also what led you to, um, to, to you know, go to your computer and, and send that out into the ether. <laughs> well, you know, I think there's been uh, there's a fair bit of uh, change going on in the university sector, and I think you and, and your your readers or listeners, uh, you know, well informed on that because there's, you know, we see that with with the the amount of of attempted new projects and innovations and so on in the learning process, and more and more of those are driven from the corporate end. So I think on the one hand, it's part of a long going criticism that goes back at you know a decade plus that I have about universities failing to build their capability in new approaches to teaching and learning. Or put another way, universities really, until recently, and even now that's that's a bit haphazard and sporadic, but they really haven't identified that there are some structural changes happening with the profile of students that enter the university. There are some structural changes happening with how individuals access the learning opportunities that exist in society as a whole. And so as a result of that, universities have been slow to catch on to things like online learning as a, as a broad structure. They've been slow to catch on to uh, the new profiles of students that have needs that go outside of the existing university model. And uh, the emerging population of students is very different than what we're used to, meaning it's not the 17 to 22 year student population. So I think as a backdrop, that was the first sort of big 
thing, which is a long going simmering frustration that higher education has largely failed to create a new teaching and learning pipeline that meets the needs of, of the students that are emerging as, as a prominent part of the population. And so as a result of that failure, it's produced this, uh, this huge opportunity for organizations to step up. And these are external organizations that then provide capability that the university has failed to develop. And pure and simple, I see that as a failure of leadership. Um, leadership has, has not treated it like an opportunity that they need to embrace and that they need to prepare for. Um, there's been a lot of mindsets of status quo will be the way that things go forward, even though the world around us has structurally and dramatically changed. Can you give me an example of like something that colleges you wish they had built that they didn't? Oh, sure. I mean, you know, one example is with the big OPM movement right now. Um, so these no program managers that, that somebody, an outside company will come in and help build an online program for someone. That's the Exactly. I mean, there's no reason why universities shouldn't have developed that capability themselves. Um, you know, there's no reason why a university would outsource core functionality um, that they haven't prepared for. Now, you can't br- blame OPMs that have said, look, universities failed to develop this capability. We'll step in and help them. So that's, that's just one illustration. Another illustration would be uh, a criticism that, uh, you know, first of all, I was obviously fairly involved with MOOCs right from the get-go. And um, so MOOCs are just a one illustration. There was almost a sense of these, these things are irrelevant, they don't matter. And yet now we're, we're starting to see that they've actually formed an enormous part of um, the sort of innovation space for universities or, or I should say individual employees that are trying to um, more rapidly get into the labor market. And this is just as recent as uh, I think last year, uh, Kaggle released sort of this survey or this uh, uh, review that said, that, you know, up to 60% of people that are working in um, different areas of data science develop their skills through uh, online or through non-traditional means or through MOOCs. And so essentially what that means is that that there there's this, uh, de- how would I put it? The needs of society have become much more complex than what they've been in the past. And as a result of the growing complexity of those needs, universities uh, are not addressing those needs broadly the students have turned to other venues and other providers. And even when there's a chance to work with something like MOOCs that, that meets the needs of that population, we've seen universities sort of step away from that. And now the fastest growing segment of the learner population is the non-traditional population. And that's the segment that MOOCs and other innovative programs and platforms target. Now you've, you've been around the higher ed for a while. Have you, you think that's changed from faculty meetings, say 10 or 15 years ago? Oh, I think absolutely. And 2008 is in some ways, it's not a trend that was initiated there. I think if anything, it was a watershed moment that crystallized it, or at least made those trends more, more obvious. And the financial uh, crisis of uh, you're referring to. Exactly. Well, specifically, specifically this, the decline in state funding that had been a long-term decline. And the more you, obviously, if you're a student um, and you're, you're racking up debt, at least in the U S context, there are other, other regions of the world that don't have the same challenge. But if you're a student in this kind of an environment, you are going to end up being cautious of you know the debt that you're taking on. You don't have that same freedom of exploration because the idea of university education has moved from being, for lack of a better word, a public good where an educated population benefits the preservation of a healthy democratic society versus the idea of a university education benefits an individual and her ability to get employment. 
in some ways, the, the, the funding mechanisms, even though we give lip service and say, no, universities are about transforming lives too, but the funding mechanisms that, that are in place with reduced state funding essentially validate the idea that it's a private good, not a public good. Mm-hmm. At least in, in, in the U.S. And, and many Western societies. So the uh, from that end, I would say, yeah, there, there has been a, a pronounced change over the last you know, several decades. But the acceleration of it, or at least where it became very obvious, was when you went through a period post-2008 financial crisis of significant state-level reductions. And then that related to the, the acceleration of increase in tuitions that were charged to to individuals and once you have an individual paying like they're a customer they're going to start acting like they're a customer and uh, that i think is an underpinning pressure that all universities face i'm going to cut in here for a brief word from this week's podcast sponsor are you interested in creating an innovative technology-driven classroom where your students can thrive Emporia State University's Instructional Design and Technology Master's Program can help you do just that. The IDT program is available entirely online, so you can complete the coursework from the comfort of your own home. And it's now offered in an accelerated format. If enrolled full-time, you can complete the degree in as little as a year. Given the diverse career tracks in instructional design, multimedia, and technology, this program offers students the flexibility to customize their course of study based on individual goals and interests. Graduates of the program are well-prepared to practice their unique, multidisciplinary profession in a variety of settings, including business, K-12 schools, higher education, government, military, and to pursue doctoral studies. Learn more at emporia.edu slash grad. That address once more is emporia.edu slash grad. Now back to the conversation. I'm so curious. I mean, was there a meeting you went to that day or some news article you read the day you tweeted that, that, that that sort of really called it attention to it that day? I don't know if it was anything specific. I think it was just, just realizing that how we act and how we perform was, was not dramatically different. And I think it might've been, you know, there's been a few conversations that uh, Kevin Carey and others have initiated around how universities are structured. Um, right. And on, on this topic and what Huffington Post. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And that was around the OPM thing specifically. And, and so there was a lot of conversation that generated and then seeing the conversations going on and realizing that it, it's not just an academic discussion, so to speak. It's not just, you know, are OPMs good or are OPMs bad? Uh, it's, uh, and clearly, I mean, they, they meet a need for the university sector. Systems that fail to develop capabilities need to buy that expertise. But for me, it was just the sense that, well, in what way are we that dramatically different uh, from from universities that spend their time pursuing and thinking and talking about economics? And by virtue, we have to. So I'm not saying that universities wanted to become this. I'm saying that's what, due to government funding, due to the changes in, in, in competitiveness, uh, universities have become this system that in many ways has uh, a lot of the, sh- the same actions and behaviors of a for-profit enterprise. We still like to think that we, we aren't that, that we have different morals or values or whatever you want to call it. I think at the end of the day, our behaviors and actions are quite comparable to the for-profit sector. This charge that public higher ed is no different than for-profit higher ed sparked a sharp reaction on Twitter and plenty of pushback. With all deference to your core point, I feel you've grossly overstated the similarity. There's a big difference between revenue and funding and profit. The changing ecosystem is bound to change all entities that reside there. That's Shane Morris, 
a web content manager and market research analyst for the University of Northern Colorado's extended campus. He's reading the tweet he posted in response. I was curious to hear more from Maris since he's at a public university, but he's at a section of that trying to serve non-traditional students. And he noted that for-profit colleges have actually taught traditional colleges some positive lessons. Well, I, I just felt that the um, implication of the point he was trying to make was um, uh, a lot stronger of a change or an impact than what was implied. So it just felt like making that distinction would be valuable for audiences to see. I see. And so what? how would you describe the difference? Well, uh, I really actually um, feel like the entrance of for-profit universities into the market um, for, for everything that they did in the ways that they approach students, um, some good and some bad uh, policies and, and processes came out of that. There were things that the for-profits were doing on on um, student service and uh, helping people continue through their education to the end that I think traditionally universities weren't doing enough of. I think so. I think there's things that could be learned from that. And a lot of universities are implementing those now. Um, I think as soon though, as you have to be beholden to someone else's profit or shareholders, um, you know, then you're setting aside money for other people. Uh, rather than having revenue be something that you're drawing in for your employees, your students, your alumni, you know, just making sure that you're offering a good experience. I think it fundamentally changes when you have to make decisions that are going to benefit outside people. Yeah. So you're working in this area um, of trying to to serve, serve students who, like you said, might actually be also looking at for-profits in some cases, maybe. Absolutely. Because of our um, role in distance and online education, um, we've been doing online for more than 20 years for um, for credit programs. But there obviously when for-profits entered um, higher education, a lot of that was in distance and online education. So just by uh, the nature of it, our department uh, competes for the same type of students, the ones who um, will probably be working full-time or part-time while they attend their program and who are looking for um, services and support in a different way than the on-campus uh, you know, traditional back-in-the-day type of a student. And he certainly wasn't the only one voicing objections to the idea that there's no difference anymore between traditional colleges and for-profit ones. Yeah, I quite disagree. In for-profit, the institution typically owns 90% of the curriculum and pedagogy decisions. In non-profit, I would say it's exactly the opposite. That's Maria Anderson, the CEO and co-founder of CourseTune, a company that makes software to help colleges redesign their curriculum. She's also taught courses at community colleges as an adjunct and worked as director of learning design at an experimental nonprofit college called Western Governors University. I just don't think, I think there's still a huge difference between for-profit institutions and nonprofit institutions. And um, sometimes for the better and sometimes for the worse, I think that in nonprofit institutions, they have a very hard time moving on anything quickly because of the fact that 90% of the curriculum pedagogy decisions are owned by faculty. And what that means is that the institution as a whole cannot uh, make quick moves, right? When you have 
um, 100 people wanting to steer the ship in different directions. It doesn't make for a quick move uh, when there's something that needs to happen. Yeah, well, I don't even think that public institutions are driven by student numbers, enrollment, and money as much as... Um, because the faculty aren't driven by student numbers, enrollment, and money, right? It's the institution, the leadership of the institution might be, but I mean, the biggest problem in, in nonprofit institutions is that you have to get faculty on board for anything you do. And that turns out to be the hardest thing at any institution of higher ed that's a nonprofit institution. Um, there are some nonprofits that do it and and have that kind of control over their faculty, but they were typically started with a completely different model. Like WGU is clearly a nonprofit with a completely different model, right? This is the Western Governors University, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and they hired all of their faculty from the beginning with the understanding that they were not traditional faculty. And if you didn't like that, don't take the job. Mm-hmm. Right? But um, in general, I think that for profits do have a lot more control over their curriculum. And so while they are also driven by student numbers, enrollment, and money, they can make rapid changes to their curriculum because they're using uh, primarily a large staff of adjuncts to teach their classes. And the control of what's going into the curriculum is happening centrally in some you know, design office instead of individually in every classroom separately. Mm-hmm. And I think when I talked to George beyond this, the, the, the actual tweet, it sounded like part of what he was frustrated by was that colleges have failed to invest in, um, in systems that, and, and kind of like to, to control their own destiny with some of this online and that now they're kind of forced into a situation where they have to become, um, you kind of work with so many of these for-profit companies that that's also part of the problem. I'm curious. Well, what you I think, think that comes back to faculty too. Actually, um, I'm I am consistently amazed at the difference between how line how online courses are developed at community colleges and how online courses are developed at four year colleges. So a lot of the four year nonprofit colleges are hiring OPMs to do the work for them, right? And These the, are the online program managers, right? Yeah, yeah, and the development costs you know like twenty to fifty thousand dollars a course, where as if you want to teach an online course at a community college, the faculty member is expected to do all the work of development, maybe with a stipend of $1,000 if they're lucky, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's like a pretty vast difference in cost uh, between, you know, what it quote unquote costs a community college and what it costs a, a four-year college. And that's not to say that the quality is different in those two things. It's just that that's an expected part of the job for a community college faculty member who wants to teach online is that you're going to do all the work. Uh, And at a four-year college, somehow that isn't part of the job. Um, So for-profit, it might be developed by committee or in a very different way. Well, I think in in for-profit, it's not that they're making the decision about whether the faculty members, I I think in nonprofit, a lot of times the decision to go OPM is because they don't think they can get the the faculty members to to do the work involved for the money that they probably Mm. can pay, right? Or the release time they would have to give. The models aren't set up for that, right? So if you needed to give a faculty member the equivalent of a $30,000 or $40,000 release time, uh, you would have to make up that difference with more faculty, right? And so at the nonprofit four years, they just end up hiring an OPM to do the work because it's kind of seen as this temporary thing that needs to happen. Although I would argue with that as well. Um, and then uh, at the, 
at the for profits, I think they then just make the decision. Um, there's, they essentially know what the cost is already of developing a high quality online course. And they just decide, do we want to do it internally? Or do we want to hire out for it? Um, and it's often just a matter of staffing and time, it t- how fast they need to get the course to the market and things like that. All of this feels like it's just this trend, this kind of growing pains of this transition to online in, in a lot of ways, or to serving new groups of students too, for some of these tr- traditional four years. Yeah, I think uh, a lot of institutions have realized that if they don't get into this market soon, that they might be in trouble, right? Uh, and so the need to just quickly staff up has, has caused them to quickly course up, maybe is better phrasing for it, has caused them to go and look for ways to almost bypass the, the, the beauty of going OPM, I think, for some of these schools is that once that decision has been made by leadership, there's not much the faculty can do to argue about it. They're, they're there to be the subject matter experts on the design. And the decision to build the online course with an OPM has been made. It's done, right? Uh, whereas if the institution had tried to go a more traditional route and have faculty internally do the development, then they have to get past all that arguing that faculty do with each other about what should go in the courses and what you know the curriculum design should look like and who should teach what and who has ownership of what and whether the IP is owned by the faculty or the institution. And somehow in, in moving that development outside the institution, I think the administration gets to just say that that decision is over and done with. You will just cooperate with this. Right. And, and that's, I think what's causing the the shift to OPMs and, and the four-year schools, but I'm not aware of a ton of community colleges that are using OPMs to design courses. Are you? I don't know of any, no, I don't. Yeah. I mean, no. so in community colleges, it's just a different, it's a different expectation for faculty. Faculty are there to teach students and uh, whether you don't think they've fallen into this money trap that is described here. No, because I think that quite frankly, community colleges have been teaching online for 15 years now, right? Like in the public sphere, we tend to like, people have just discovered online because schools like Harvard and Stanford finally got into the business. Right. And so when they did, then online became a real thing. Right. But community colleges have always been doing it. And, and I think frankly, they've been a little bit, miffed that the public has only discovered online courses as the Ivy Leagues got into the business and the MOOCs got into the business uh, when they've been doing it all along and they've been doing high quality research around it and they've been, you know, they've had all sorts of quality initiatives like Quality Matters to make sure that courses are high quality and to only have it be legitimized when the the, the more prominent, I'll say, schools in the media get involved is is kind of insulting to the people who've been doing the work for decades. There were some people I wanted to talk to you, but but couldn't get. One that represented several people's take was, I agree that your criticism is valid, but I think grouping in higher ed with for-profit colleges vastly underestimates how predatory for-profit colleges are. They take their students for every penny they've got and leave them without much hope for increased earnings. Higher education can and should be less expensive, but it is still a winning proposition for the bulk of students. You're better off having gone to college than not. Comparing it to for-profit puts the standard too low. So pretty much all parts of higher education are now grappling with online education and and for-profit entrance and wrestling with how to serve a broader population of students. So where do we go from here? I'll let George Siemens have the last word. So fundamentally, it's a failure of leadership, like I said earlier. I, I think the uh, university leadership uh, in you know in systems uh, you know really around the world needs to begin thinking 
in in significantly different ways. Like when I think of the U.S. as just as one illustration, there's there's a handful, if that, of universities that are known to be innovative systems uh, that are pushing envelopes. And you you know the typical names. You know, University of Central Florida comes up, ASU comes up. There's a a small number of players that are known to push the envelope. I think it's really about university. You know, I recognizing that the current failure is a failure of leadership, and that the solution is a solution of, of uh, leadership sort of pushing and and uh, creating a, a narrative or or a climate in which new innovative practices uh, are pursued while at the same time addressing that unique dynamic of the university as being a societal place to think and time to think deeply. Hmm. Of course, I'm sure people are wondering where the money will come from, not to not to obsess on that and fall into the same trap, but the, that, that has seemed to have been a, a driver of some of the decisions that have been made. Yeah, it absolutely is. And that's the environment for whatever reason uh, that we are in where the economics drive the conversation. This has been a bonus episode of the Ed Surge On Air podcast. Check out regular episodes every Tuesday, and we hope you'll subscribe wherever you listen. And you can check out our show page at bit.ly slash edsurgepod. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.